Hi, I'm Lori Feathers, a bookstore owner and writer in Dallas, Texas. And I'm Sam Jordison, a publisher from Norwich in the UK. And this is Across the Pond. A podcast for readers of fiction eager to discover the most discussed and anticipated books on both sides of the Atlantic. All right, let's dive in. Hey, Sam, what's going on? Hey, Laurie. Uh, Well, there is some good news. I think it's good news here in the UK that we have a new statue of the great Virginia Woolf, which has been unveiled uh, as we're speaking last Wednesday. So that's the 16th of November in Richmond-upon-Thames, where she lived for 10 years and did extraordinary things. So she set up the Hogarth Press with her husband, Leonard Wolf, and that was responsible for some of the, you know, the, the very best books of the 20th century, like T.S. Eliot's The Wasteland, for instance, and of course, her own books. And she wrote when she was there, she started Mrs. Dalloway, and she wrote A Room of One's Own. She, you know, she did good work in Richmond, and it's really good to have her commemorated there, I think, with a life-size bronze statue. So by all accounts, it sounds pretty impressive. Yeah, Katie Guest at The Guardian reported on this in the article that I read. And the statue was not without some, let's say, discussion. She reports that there was actually some, some discussion in Richmond about the appropriateness of the location of the statue along the river. Do you want to comment on that? Do I want to cry? I don't know, not especially. I mean, <laughs> it's, so the statue is near the River Thames. You know, it's on a, a bench, apparently, looking out over the river, and people can go and sit next to her, which sounds like a, a lovely thing to me. Uh, I might quite like the idea of going having a flask of tea next to Virginia Woolf. But some people brought up the fact that, of course, her tragic death where she famously walked into the river ooze with stones in her pockets and they thought there might be some association with that but really I think it's I mean it's pretty tendentious anyway and you know to to be faced with the incredible life of Virginia Woolf this woman who achieved so much and did such wonderful things in spite of her struggles, we could call it, with mental illness. And, you know, in spite of the things that many of us here in the 21st century find difficult and uncomfortable about her. But I still think you should focus on the life and the achievements rather than the end. Yeah, I guess I can see where if you wanted to argue the point, one could say that it was not having her sit on a bench overlooking a river, I don't find it insensitive, but but I get the point, I guess. And if we focus on happier things, though, I really liked the fact of the way that they're presenting her statue in that she's she's sitting on a bench. The sculptor talked about the fact that she wants people to to touch the Virginia Woolf statue and, and to have a flask of tea with Virginia. And it's a really kind of nice, I think, way of making statues and these people that we memorialize a little bit more approachable. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm laughing slightly at the idea of Virginia Woolf being approachable because that's not one of the things she was particularly famous for, unless you were a dog, in which case she would be... Uh... 
very happy to see you. But but no, it is nice. I like it. Well, some of our listeners might remember that a few short episodes ago, we were talking about twee in England right. and whether we were memorializing people in a twee way. I don't think the Virginia statue seems twee of the pictures I've seen in the description. <laughs> oh, no. Hmm. no, I don't think so. I think it's okay. I, I mean, there's part of me that wonders what Virginia Woolf would make of it. But uh-huh. who knows? Who knows? Maybe she'd be pleased. Let's hope she would be. She would be pleased. Yeah, and I, I guess the other thing I'm wondering is if I'm thinking, oh, it can't be twee because I quite like it. <laughs> it appeals to me, therefore it's not twee. <laughs> but that's not how it works, is it? Yeah, we we probably shouldn't be so subjectively judgy like that. But yeah, I quite like the approach to kind of get these people off of their their plinths and their their kind of unapproachability in public places and kind of make her seem maybe more of the people, even though perhaps, as you said, she wouldn't really enjoy being considered that way. Yeah. And it's good to have a statue of a woman here in the UK because we do have an imbalance as far as that goes. I would say there's probably an imbalance the world over in terms of the male to female ratio of statues in the world. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the thing that they often say about Edinburgh up in Scotland is there are more statues of animals there than there are of women. And despite the fact that there've been so many incredible women in, in Edinburgh history, it's not quite true. I think, I think there's one of Queen Victoria and Mary Queen of Scots and maybe only as someone else. Anyway, it doesn't matter. But the fact is there just aren't enough statues of women. Agreed. Well, turning the page, the National Book Awards happened recently. I know I was quite refreshed and a little surprised to see that a debut novel, The Rabbit Hutch by Tess Gundy, won the Fiction Award. That seems a relatively rare thing for a, for a debut novel to win the award. But the big news probably was the emphasis that was put on censorship in the cer- during the ceremony by the speakers. Yeah, that's right. I mean, it seems just about every speaker had something to say about censorship. And essentially what they said was stop banning books, which I think is something we can all get behind. Yeah, I think it was really nice that everyone was kind of of a united voice in this during the awards ceremony in terms of not only, of course, congratulating and announcing the winners, but talking about what a real danger this is, especially I feel like in the United States. I'm not sure that you guys are having such the ridiculous extent of book banning and books being controversial, especially in schools and libraries that we are here. We're not having it to the same extent, but we are having it. And we, you know, there's pressure coming from left and right to get books taken out of circulation. And it's a terrible, stupid thing. Yeah. The uh, great Art Spiegelman, whose book is banned in many libraries in the United States, school libraries, that is, he gave some great remarks on that about, you know, book banning and the danger it is to our society. Yeah. I mean, it was great to see Spiegelman getting recognized. So he, was given the Medal for Distinguished Contribution to American Letters, which again, I mean, I, I'm sounding like a stop clock here. I keep saying the same thing, but you know, fantastic, wonderful. But of course, he had 
things to say, as he so often did. So Mouse, as many of our listeners will know, has been subject to all this controversy and, and banning when it is this incredibly moving and important graphic novel about the Holocaust that you know has things that we should all be learning from, really. And he started off by talking about the moral panic of the 1950s, you know, pointing out the more things change, the more they stay the same. And then um, he, he made remarks on, on the fact that Mouse had been pulled from schools in McGinn County, Tennessee. And he said, my shrewd marketers on that local school board made Mouse shoot up to the top of every bestseller list, thanks to alarmed readers around the world which, nice. And in fact, as one of the people who bought Mouse as a result of that controversy, I can, I don't know if I want to thank those marketers, because that's not quite the right, the right thing to do to people who are trying to ban books. But certainly, they brought it back into my consciousness. And I'm glad that happened, because I've now looked, you know, read the book, it's astonishing, my daughter has read it, my wife has read it. So while I'm not grateful to those people, I am grateful to have read Mouse. Anyway, he he went on to say, I don't think it was exactly Holocaust denial. As one school teacher who was at the board meeting even said, I love the Holocaust. I love the Holocaust. But this is not a book I would teach students. Everyone just wanted a kind and gentle Holocaust to teach, as well as wanting to control thought. And there he really sums up what's going on. Yeah, I mean, that's just absolutely bone chilling that you would have... (laughs) A school board member in Tennessee saying, we all just want a kinder, gentler Holocaust to teach. Oh, and as well as wanting to control thought. It's awful. There we go. Yeah. But at least the at least the National Book Awards are fighting back. Yeah. As we all need to. All right, Sam. It was good talking to you. You too, Laurie. Welcome, listeners. We're really happy today to have with us Dorda Norse. She'll be with us to talk about her latest book. It's called A Line in the World, A Year on the North Sea Coast. Welcome, Dorda. Thank you very much. So nice to have you with us. We're really pleased. And this book is fascinating. I really have been fascinated with Denmark for quite some time. And so I was really interested to read about this different part of Denmark than most of us know. So would you like to maybe start us off with reading a short passage from the book? Thank you. Yes, I'd love to. I'm going to read from the beginning, just a small passage from the introduction. It's early summer and far beneath me is a coastline. I have folded it out, a map on my desk. It begins to emerge at the northernmost tip of Jotland in Denmark. Yes, that's where it begins, in the North Sea, on a tapering spit of sandy ground. Then it drops south like a slope. It meanders downwards. Now it has begun, the line. It charts the coast. It charts the coast and continues curving faintly outwards. Then come the cervical vertebra. They settle one by one, stacked each on top of another, sandy islands. And the line persists, breaking borders into Germany and on. The islands settle like smaller, delicate vertebrae into Holland, now charting not a line, but a living being. A rugged northern European coastline of roughly 600 miles from Skane in Denmark to Den Helder in Holland, from a northern sandy spit 
wedging itself between Norway and Sweden's unyielding massives down to the Wadden Sea, where the birds take rest, the hours are counted, and the living being whispers. And it goes on from there, up and down the coastline. <laughs> Lovely. So, so that bit you've read sets out essentially the, the subject of your book. And on the front of my UK copy, there's a quote from Jessica Lee, who describes the book as starkly, achingly beautiful. And I wondered if that also describes this coastline or or is it beautiful? I mean, it's it's an unusual place. So I'm hoping you can you can tell us a bit about what it looks like and how it feels to be there. I think uh, Jessica Lee is commenting on on the book as a piece of literature, but the, I think that, uh, and I'm grateful for that, <laughs> but I think the coastline is not very connected to, for instance, the Danish phenomenon, hukka. It's not a hukkily uh, place. It's rough, it's bleak, it's uh, windy, sandy, and brutal, and also very energetic. The nature is, is full of energy here because the North Sea... Uh, uh, sort of attacks the country and eats of the country and everything moves around. It's a very fluid uh, landscape. I think there was a British uh, reviewer who who uh, reviewed the book and did it wonderfully, but he also said that he had once visited this coastline and he didn't he didn't know what to do here because there was nothing <laughs> you know so and that is really interesting because what is nothing um, uh, I mean, a very bleak and rough landscape, beautiful with dunes and seagulls and wildlife and salt and um, that kind of roughness. And especially in the wintertime, no people is, of course, uh, hard to you have to learn how to read a landscape like that in order to feel like you're you're in a place that makes sense to you. And. You say that this is a part of Denmark that looks the other way to the rest of the country. So you you say when you were growing up there, your family was oriented towards the west, but the rest of Denmark tends to look east. And it almost feels like a place you you had to escape when you were younger in order to live up to your proper potential, as you put it. Or people feel they have to escape it. Is that right? Yeah, I think uh, I think you're right. Um, the very big cities in Denmark are on the east coast. It's Aarhus, which is the second uh, biggest city in Denmark, which uh, and then of course Copenhagen, which is uh, you could say is the only metropolis that we have. So of course power goes that way. We all know that that the capital will suck in power, or the biggest uh, city of a state will will take uh, the power from the rural areas. And since Denmark is a very small country, there is only six million people of us. I mean, that's uh, not even the south tip of Manhattan. So, <laughs> so of course, uh, what happens then is that uh, people are kind of forced to look east, to look towards that big city in order to go to university, in order to make something or yourself or or just travel out of your predicament. But since there are almost... 500 islands in Denmark. It's a small country, but with a lot of islands. So back in the old days, it was really hard to travel from Copenhagen to the west side of the country. So there is a kind of division in the culture there that that still lingers on, even though we have bridges everywhere and we can get to Copenhagen within three hours from anywhere, you know, that people over here have been used to not looking east because they would never 
be able to go there. It would t- take too much time to go there. So they would be looking west towards the North Sea because the North Sea was the easy way to travel. So they would look to London, to Scotland, to Holland, to Africa. I mean, that's, that is one of the reasons why people on this coastline have the Angles, the Saxons, and the, and the Jews have colonized uh, first uh, the British Isles and then the the Brit the Brits went on colonized the world. You know, <laughs> it's the kind of um, that outlook towards West that the North Sea is the center of things and not Copenhagen. Mm-hmm. And even though it's a, it's a place you you perhaps had to leave, it also drew you back. And you write, I no longer want to be anyone but myself. And for that, you need the big skies and the the horizons you describe so beautifully in the book. And I'm wondering where that feeling came from. And I guess also when, was it something that was always with you? I think it was always with me, but I didn't know. I always uh, felt a little sad about having to leave home because I felt connected to where I was, but I was also adventurous. So when I was around 40, I just felt that pull uh, back. It was like there was something missing. Uh, I lived in Copenhagen, and I spent a lot of time in uh, the big cemeteries of the of, of the city, and it's not because I, I'm, I have anything with the dead. It was because that was the closest thing to a landscape. It was silent, and there was green, and there was... So I thought, oh, I, I, there's something I'm missing. And every time I return home to visit my family, I could feel like I was, my pulse came down. It was like I suddenly understood my surroundings much better. And uh, so I, I just decided to, to take the chance that the landscape would have me back and, and take me in again. And it did. Your book is arranged in 10 essays, but there's a wonderful, I think, narrative arc to it insofar as you start the book and then you also close the book with this idea of a schism from which all identity is formed. Can you explain that to our listeners and then also maybe explain how that has manifested itself in in you and your identity? Yeah, it's true that the book almost reads like a novel, even though it's 14 essays, and that there is this person moving through the landscape and through uh, different themes and constantly trying to figure out what is a place and what is memory and what is identity and where do I belong and what does it mean to come from a place and what is time and all these things. So it reads like a novel. And what I mean about the schism and and uh, identity is because that's that's how my identity uh, developed. And I know a lot of people who, uh, and I and that doesn't matter what country you come from, but who, but who had to travel far or to move far from where they came to educate themselves or to become or to sort of outlive their potentials and and do well. That there is a, a certain feeling of belonging in two places you have these traditions and this root that comes from one place but you are no longer like that you have also urbanized yourself you're also a very modern intellectualized uh, individual but at the same time you're rooted in something that is very basic like what the the earth smells like where I come from, how the growth smells like, how the wind, how the wind means something for the water, all these things. And it's like being two people in one. 
and they and one of the reasons why I wrote this book was that I wanted them to merge. Yeah, I wanted the one the person I had become to sort of fuse with the person I was. So it was um it was a wonderful book to to write also because I I would just take my car and I would go to a place. I would find out that memory was connected to any place that we go and all people know that. And then I would go home and write a piece, one piece after the other and after and I would spend one year doing that. And when that year was over, I read all the pieces, one piece after another. And that's when it hit me. This is kind of a novel because I actually learned something as a, you know, a natural learning process that just uh, sort of donated itself to the writing. Uh, But I didn't know that as I was writing it. It was like figuring it out in the end that it actually worked. Talking of memory, I wanted to ask, because it's a book that seems haunted by your past to a certain extent, but also by collective memory. And there's a a really moving line in it, for instance, about landmines that have been, forgive me if I pronounce this wrong, but have been left on the Scalingen Peninsula. And you say you could go for a walk and get your legs blown off by the past, which of course Mm -hmm. has a very literal meaning in that sense. But, you know, within the context of the book, it takes on this this bigger resonance about the the past exploding on you in in different ways. And so I wanted to, to, to ask you about the way the past blasts into the present and in this part of the world and within your book. I think all places where people go, the way we read them is that we read them through our own memory of them. So there's a reason why you perhaps don't want to go to the school where you were mocked and bullied uh, throughout uh, your childhood. That's because that when you go there, all these memories are sort of, they're in an archive in your brain that when you go there, you remember that. That's also why people don't run back to Auschwitz to revisit it, because that's where the memories are. And we know that about places, but it doesn't have to be traumatic. I mean, if you go to a place where you haven't been for 20 years you haven't thought about that place for 20 years. But when you show up there, you suddenly remember where uh, you could buy ice. You remember that day 20 years ago, maybe in what, what clothes you were wearing. So moving around in a landscape is moving around with memory. And I wanted to have that in the book. And the only way I could do that was by donating pieces of my own memory. And uh, a place also has its own memory. It has a collective history. And the scalinging story is, of course, the memory that is embedded there is a memory of the Second World War and the German occupation or the Nazi occupation. So I just wanted people to know that when you move, you also deal with the darker sides of your own life, but also just things that you experienced the last time you were there. And uh, and that's also what connects us uh, so dramatically to places. It's that our stories are put there, our senses, our way of seeing the world and ourselves and our families and our friends and our everything that has happened to us. It's in the place. I have got a question about memory as well. There's a There's a really interesting passage where you're wandering around a a very desolate rural place. And you notice that there's a lot of paths and you text a friend and you guys talk about to each other through text, the kind of similarities between the way that, you know, memories make 
pathways and connections in your brain, and then the paths that go through the landscape after a certain trail has been followed for a number of times. And I wondered whether or not you think that memory and landscape kind of work differently or that memories are imprinted in a landscape differently in a rural, desolate kind of country setting than in an urban environment. I would say I, of course, use the whole thing about memory, making tracks and paths in the landscape as a sort of metaphor. But it is true that that is how our brain works, that two neurons start communicating and then they, they make a path. And that is also how human beings and animals and everything find their way in the landscape. They want to go to the pond, so they start making a track there. I do think all landscapes, even very big urban landscapes are also constructed like that. For instance, the best example, Manhattan, Broadway used to be a track. That's, I mean, if you see Manhattan from above, everything is like a grid, which is a city planner who made that. And then Broadway goes like in a crooked lineup. And that's because that was the road that was originally there. That's a track. That's a path that, uh, that the indigenous people of that place made back when. So I do think urban cities uh, work like that. I mean, the whole idea of the grid in American city planning is super smart because you can always, um, uh, that's the new world's way of of, of making memory, right? Uh, Because you can always find your way around. That's when the landscape is gone. That's when the grid comes. But as when the landscape is there, you move in different ways. You move in flowing and bending ways. So um, I do think there is. And I mean, human beings are nature. Our brains are nature. We're nature, just like Newton stars, the moon, the water, the storms, everything. So what you find in your brain will resonate to things that you find in completely different structures. Uh, I do believe that. That's beautiful. <laughs> yeah also a little scary right (laughs) maybe a little yeah neutron stars don't want to have that in your brain right i have i have another another question about about memory and i'm i kind of feel bad about bringing it up after that that beautiful image and when so much (laughs) of the book is is positive but there's one moment that really stood out for me of real visceral anger which is when you're tracing some runes in mm-hmm. in a church and i wonder if you could tell us about that moment and the the emotion it gave you well it's it's a very very old church we have around here from uh, one of the earliest and that means it's built right between the viking age and the middle age so back then uh the danes would still communicate in runes and um there are two doors there was a door for men to enter this church and uh, a door for women and at the the, not anymore but in the medieval evil time and by the women's door there were runes and they said uh it was sort of like a a spell there that uh that called on uh the mother mary that when you step through that door you would be clean make me clean mother mary and that's because women could not enter the church during their periods or right after birth uh, because they were dirty, and it and uh, it seems so crazy for modern women that that should 
that that has taken place. But we, of course, know that that has been taboo for centuries and centuries and centuries in all kinds of cultures. So I just wanted to add that when you come into a church like that, the rooms in themselves are extremely beautiful and ancient and full of magic. Um, but what they what they're saying uh, made me and and the friend that I had uh, along on that tour quite angry. <laughs> you know, <laughs> we want the same door, and don't you put your nose in what our body is doing? You know, it's yeah. our bodies. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> One of my favorite stories from the book is the story of the tulip bulbs and the shipwreck. I'm wondering if you can tell our listeners about that, and then. Also, for me, that that story is is a, a very hopeful story, but I'm wondering whether or not you have a lot of hope for, I don't know, the the situation that we are in right now in terms of our our climate crisis. That's that's kind of a big philosophical issue to put <laughs> to put against a, a really lovely story with tulip bulbs and a shipwreck but i don't know give it a try please <laughs> yeah well the story about the 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 tulip uh, bulbs is that this this coastline is one of the most dangerous ones in the world so thousands and thousands and thousands of ships have gone down out here and one time in 1917 the dutch ship came up along the coast uh, with um with a lot of uh tulip bulbs and apples on board and they stranded out here. And uh, the local ones uh, took all the apples and ate them. But the tulip bulbs, the, they just let, lay, lie there. So the next spring, the, the beach, wherever these bulbs could f- find a little soil, that would they would bloom. So it must have been a wonderful vision that that next spring when all the bulbs were, were uh, blooming. And it is true that when you live on a sandy coastline, and we know that the storms will get harder and harder and harder and harder and more not necessarily harder but more frequent so the so the restitution of the the coastline um will be hard to um to function and and there's also in in holland where most of the country is actually below water so they really need very big dikes and we need them up here as well i thought a lot about this climate change uh, apocalypse on the horizon when I wrote this book. And I really, really wanted to write about this place and its beauty and with love instead of saying this place is already dead because look at the apocalypse. Because if you start seeing nature and the world like that, there's no reason to save it. I mean, then we can just as well pick up a can of gasoline and, you know, pour uh petrol on the whole place and, and light it because it's dead already so i if you if you want people to help solve this crisis we have to love these things and see them as things that are still here and that we are able to do something about and uh the first thing we have to do is connect to it again because we brought this entire catastrophe on us because we disconnected from it yeah, I have to ask about the the surfers in relation to that, because one of the things I really liked about the book, you know, it has this realism about climate change. And um, there's a quote, those who live by water are under constant threat from it. But there is this side you've just been talking about, this more optimistic and loving side. That's a really nice way of putting it. And 
one of the things that happens as the book goes on is that the the beautiful surfers arrive and they start bringing a new kind of life to the region. So Mm -hmm. can you tell us something about them? Yeah, um, back in the old days, nobody would surf here because it's cold and it's brutal. But then in the 70s, late 70s, uh, first German surfers um, came to uh, a place in on this coastline called Tui, and they found out that uh, it was a great place to surf. It was like the perfect waves. It was cold. They didn't care because it was perfect waves. So they started settling. There was a little conflict with a with a local official village uh, who were pop- suddenly they were they were surfers everywhere and they bought houses and they colonized and they and that's actually, that city has grown quite big and international with surfers from all over the world and it's called cold Hawaii and it's interesting my, my uh, American editor right now uh, is from Hawaii so we share photos from this place sometimes like and it's like bathing suits one on one place and the other place is like knitted hats and uh, frock suits <laughs> but. It's a very, the interesting thing with surfers compared to tourism, which of course is another industry here, is that tourism is very stressful for a landscape. But surfing is different because the people who who go there, they actually stay there. They don't just come there to get entertained and then leave again. They stay there. They know the landscape. They bring in children because they're quite often young. So the schools flourish. And also they have a different kind of materialism. They're vegan, they're vegetarian, they're into recycling. They're, I mean, there's, it's another kind of energy. And uh, it's been quite amazing to see what surfing has done to this coastline and what people from uh, this community, uh, it's, it's started up there in the north and it's just been a trickle-down effect on down the coastline. So we see this culture uh, spreading it's good in many ways because they understand the landscape they understand the the sea they're nature people yeah yeah i really loved the story about the cold hawaiians as well but i wonder is there not attention because another thing that struck me about the book is that there are really a lot of isolated communities and and cultures here you know different dialects spoken and you go into some of the native uh, dances a bit and tradition. And when we're thinking about uh, preservation and conservation in terms of the climate, I'm wondering, is there a concerted effort to kind of preserve those really special places and, and the cultures within, within Denmark? No, and that's been a problem in my entire lifetime. When I was a child, we were not allowed, allowed to speak dialect. I mean, my dialect was was moved when I was uh, in school. If I talk dialect, I, it would be uh, commented by the teacher, and I was taught how to speak proper. So a lot of these dialects have really, really struggled um, to survive. What we see now is that after many years of centralization of power and a lot of urbanism, there are forces in the country that wants to save these dialects, save these traditions, and, and, and acknowledge that these places are actually pristine and quite interesting. They're not just dumb peasants who should learn how to behave in modern culture, which was the idea back then, you know, that we should, we should be urbanized so we weren't so, you know, like, yeah, peasants. 
farmers and 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 uh, not uh, sophisticated enough. Um, so I I do think that there is an awareness uh, of that. A lot of it has gone though. Uh, a lot of it has been lost, and a lot of villages due to centralization has also been emptied from people. And that isn't even as bad uh, on this coastline as it is in other parts of Europe, but you see it here too. So I was reminded of the famous Thomas Wolfe quote that you can never go home again. And of course, in the way he meant it, you probably can't. But to an extent, you have, you know, you've obeyed that, that magnet, as you put it, and returned to where you grew up and revisited so many of your own experiences and I'm wondering how you feel about that at the end of this book and whether it's something you'd recommend even. I would say I didn't move back to the very place I came from. Mm. I live about 60 miles further west and I wouldn't recommend moving back to the parish or the village that you grew up in because I mean that's really turning back time in a way that I don't think would be very successful. So I moved to a place where I I, I knew that knew it. I had been there before, but I was not. My family wasn't there. I didn't go to school there. It's it's a, a different parish to me, and it worked for me because I have the kind of job that I have. That I travel a lot. I can also. It's very my my the expenses of living here is low, so I can uh, take out two months and live in Amsterdam and sort of you know, feed the two sides of my identity, both the urban one and the, and the rural one. There are more and more young Danes who, who um, try to make that journey back, mostly because it's super expensive, like, you know, in London and in all big cities. It's almost impossible to make a living there because you can't afford it. And then when you get kids, you really can't afford it. And then they tend to try that journey back. It's not uncomplicated. But I see more and more people doing it. And the more people who do it, the more normalized it will be. And, uh, and I, think, uh, I think we haven't seen the end of that because um, it's nice being a kid out here. We must remember that. <laughs> Lovely. You know, you, have, you can run around. You can, I mean, there's landscape everywhere. There's, it's, it's a very intense childhood to have when you grow up in, a, in, in wild nature. Um, so I think more and more people will probably drift back. It's not uncomplicated because you 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 had, you've got new manners out there uh, in in the big cities. You you learn how to speak loud. That's not what you do in small villages. You speak low, so, so you you seem awkward when you come back. It's like you're flashing, you're noisy, you're you're not tuned in, and sometimes you've learned ways of living that seems uh, exotic and strange, and you bring that with you, and that can be seen as a threat to the constancy of a small place. So you have to wiggle your way around it and find out what it is. Um, there will be victories and there will be failures. <laughs> I was jealous of you every time you mentioned combing the beach and picking up amber. I love amber and I love the variety of amber. You know, you've got like the the type that's almost like bright orange cut glass. And then you've got the very milky white yellow varieties. And it just seemed like so lovely. Although I'm sure it's quite cold to just like walk the beach and be looking in the sand and picking up these like little treasures. I love doing that. It's like meditating. 
Yes. Um, and I primarily do it during the winter because there aren't that many tourists here. So I get all the amber for myself. If I get out there and there is a lot of amber on a specific day, I can just walk there for hours and hours. No food, no water. It's like you're in a trance because it's like picking up strawberries. They're everywhere. And then uh, I put them in my mouth. That's how I check if it's amber or if it's a rock, because <laughs> that's how you can tell. A rock would be cold. Amber is always warm. I didn't know that. It's, it's always warm. If you put a necklace of amber around your neck, you go, how can this rock sort of warm my neck? And, and that's the strange thing about amber. It, um, it has a, another texture and, it's, um, and it, it brings some, some kind of heat from ancient times uh, with it. I don't know how, how, why it is. That's a magical property. <laughs> yeah, it is. So, so I do that. I put them in a, my mouth. And then at one point I found that sometimes I'm out there and I don't have any pockets because it's in the summer and I'm finding amber and I don't know where to put it. So I put it in my mouth like a, like a hamster. <laughs> and, I've had, and I've had a lot of comments about that. And, and now I'm just going to enjoy it even more because it's a weird thing to do. But it's also a very, there's a kind of connectedness in that. Because I truly believe that that is what they did back in the old days when they picked up amber. That's how they tested it, and they didn't have pockets, so they transported it in their mouths. <laughs> and I bring it home, and I wash it, and I put it in a jar, so I don't do anything. And then when I have guests over, they look at my amp and go, whoa, is that a branch? Is that an insect? You know, that's, uh -huh. it's, uh, yeah, yeah, I love it too. Well, Dorde Norse, thank you so much for being with us today to talk about this just really lovely and for me, very original book talking about the North Coast of Denmark. It's called A Line in the World, A Year on the North Sea Coast. And I should mention, I'm sorry I didn't before, that it's translated from the Danish by Caroline Waite. And I hope that everyone will run out to their local independent bookstore and pick up a copy. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.